This morning our lesson is from Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our study in the book of Colossians. We're in a section of Colossians that deals with the Savior, that deals with Jesus Christ. In fact, it gives him the preeminence, first place in everything as our last part of the verse this morning. He deserves first place. He rightfully is first place innately as well as in all of his actions. He is the head of the body, Colossians 1.18 says. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And he is first place in everything because when you go back to back to verse 13, you read of the fact that he is our deliverance. He delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear light. And so we talk about that kingdom, that kingdom is future. For all of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the next step, the next era, the next state is none other than what we call the millennium or what we call the kingdom of Jesus Christ where he rules on the earth from Jerusalem and there will be no war and there will be no police force and there will be perfect peace on the earth and all those who survive the tribulation who are believers will populate that kingdom Jews and Gentiles alike and no one will die before the age of 100 and if they die at that age, they will be considered accursed. So that is the next era that you and I are in. Now, none of us are going to go in there alive. By that I mean none of us are going to go through the tribulation. And none of us are going to be survived this era. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be taken home to be with Christ. You will be with him you will have already received your rewards. You will have stood at the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be the bride of Christ actively as he rules and reigns. So he has delivered us. He has forgiven our sins. Think of that. How many sins would we count up? Everybody's sin in this room would be astronomical, wouldn't it? I admit it. It would be. We would all have sin, but Jesus Christ sufficiently on the cross paid for all our sins for those who believe in him. He has taken care of all of it. We'll praise his name for that. Furthermore, in verse 14 we read, he purchased us. He redeemed us. He bought us out of the slave market of sin. We who were helpless, he bought us out. Furthermore, he is manifested in the fact that he is the visible image of the invisible God. Every time God the Father sought to reveal himself, he did it through the Son. The Son revealed himself. It was the Son, the Creator, who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. It was the Son, Jesus Christ, who was in the burning bush that said to Moses, take off your shoes for the ground you are walking on is holy ground. And he gave his name is I am that I am. I am sufficient. 
There is none other. Furthermore, he created the world as we saw last week. He deserves to be number one because he not only delivered us, he not only purchased us, he not only is God himself in every way, he furthermore is the creator and he spoke and it was. He just said, and there was the world. He did it in six days. He could have done it all at once, all at the same time. But he phased it out in six days to give us a pattern of a work week. It was in his gracious way. And the last of his creation was human beings who were created in the image of God. Today we look at verse 18 where it says, He is also the head of the body. Prior to that, this is a carryover from the previous verse. Notice as we read it. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ not only created the universe, he holds it together. What is it that causes that little atom that circles around a nuclei to keep going? What is that glue that keeps that atom together and keeps it from blowing up everything? It is the word of Christ. It is he who holds it together. It is he who causes all things to well, go. Take a look with me at a couple verses in the psalm. Let's turn to Psalm 135, verse 6. Psalm 135, verses 6 and 7. It's in the middle of your Bible. If you uh, go too far to the front, you're uh, going to land too short. And if you go too far the other way, you're going to overshoot the runway. It's a big book in the Old Testament. Most of you know it. Psalms uh, 136, 6 and 7. Here's what it says about our Lord, who is before all things and in him all things exist. Verse 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, the sea and all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes the lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasure. We just saw that yesterday. Some of you got little rain, but a lot of us got good rain and some of you got too much, and some of you got a lot of wind. And poor people down in Sutton are picking up pieces there, and Geneva and other places, and some crops were ruined, and some crops were not. Who makes those decisions? God. You all agreed on that? Can we go on? He is in charge. He is absolutely sovereign. And by the way, he knows exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. To the minute. And he told us that he holds all things together and we're his children and we will never lose our salvation and he will take care of us. So why are you worried about tomorrow? He's in charge. He takes care of us. While you're in Psalm, turn to Psalm 100, uh, 104, verses 3 to 5. 104, 3 to 5. 
where again we read about the sovereignty of God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of our universe. Psalm 104, verses 3, says the following. Hope you're there. Don't want you to miss it. Psalm 104, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the winds, wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. How long is that? Forever. Do you know that God's going to restore the entire world? And we're going to live on this entire earth forever? All you have to do is go down and read uh, Colossians. He's going to reconcile all things to himself in verse 20, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and having made peace through the blood of his cross. He's going to renovate this earth. First of all, the next step, he'll renovate it through the judgment for a seven-year judgment that'll come to the earth. He'll renovate it. He'll move every mountain, as Revelation says. He'll remove and move every island. So he's going to re regenerate this earth. And then after the kingdom era, he's going to take fire and totally renovate the whole thing again. You know what he told Abraham in Genesis? He said to Abraham, the land you're standing on is yours for how long? Forever. Forever. Michael Block, who uh, uh, has preached in this church years ago when he was still in Lincoln, uh, has written a, a very good book, if you're interested, called uh, Restoration of the earth, sort of the title, I'll give you the better one. But he really develops this uh, really neatly through the scriptures. And, uh, and uh, I always thought, I'm not sure, does it mean in Second Peter he's going to destroy this whole world or not? Or is it renovation? And I was kind of fluctuating between it, and I have had Bible studies and I would say, I'm not sure when we get on that subject, but I think uh, Vlock has flipped me over. And then I went back and I read my uh, professor in seminary. He wasn't my professor, but he was a founder of uh, Grace Theological Seminary, and his name is Dr. Alva J. McLean. He wrote a book on the kingdom. He's now with the Lord. And uh, he said exactly the very same thing. So you know what? We got a grand future ahead of us, folks. And we have not yet seen what God is going to restore, what man ruined. Man ruined this planet. And man with his sin caused all kinds of destruction. A universal flood that totally blew this world and its system out. So God's going to say, if he didn't correct this, then God had a program that was a total failure. But he's going to restore it. And you and I are going to be a part of that future. Won't that be a great day? we got a lot to look forward to, folks. You know, this time on earth is short, let me tell you. It, uh, it just seems like yesterday. I was talking to one of our young people this morning, 
And I said, you're going to be a junior, aren't you? And he said, no, I'm going to be a senior. And I said, you got to be kidding me. Where did that time go? It just jumps. All right. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. You can turn to it, but it's on the board. He is, Jesus is the radiance of his glory, God's glory. The exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made perfection of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Where is Jesus now? He's in a human glorified body in heaven. Physically in heaven. Waiting to return. Now, Colossians 1, 18 says, in light of that, he is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is being the head of the church. That means he is supreme. He's the number one in the church. The church is never called a physical structure. The church is never called a state or not national church like the Church of England. The church is never called a denomination like the Baptist Church, Presbyterian Church, Methodist Church, Mennonite Church. Never called any of those things. The church is never called the kingdom of God. The church is never called Israel. It's a unique, distinct body that God has made through Christ and it is called out of all the people in the world. Now, the biblical illustrations of the church are enlightening in and of themselves. The church is called the body. The church is called the bride. The church is called a building, living stones. The church is called the priesthood. That is, all of us are priests. He is the high priest. But we represent God to the world and the world to God. We are priests. Furthermore, the church is called the flock. Then the church is called the branches of which he is the trunk. Christ's relationship to the church is parallel to his relationship to the universe. Who's in charge of the universe? You can talk back here and I will not think you're Pentecostal in any way. Who created the world? God. He sustains it. Who created the church? God. He sustains it. Christ sustains it. In other words, the same thing of his relationship to the world is the same relationship he himself to the church. By the way, this is not Rod's church. This is not the elder's church. This is Christ's church, not denominational but Christ who owns this church. He owns every foot of it. And he's in control of everything. The church is to submit to Christ in all things, recognizing that she is under the absolute 100% authority of Christ. The custodians of the church are the elders and the leaders that make up the body. Now our constitution and bylaws is the word of God. 
I've been in church meetings that we were doing things that maybe were not really in line with the Word of God, and somebody stands up and says, but our Constitution says. Our Constitution has to be under the Word of God, and if not, change it. Make it conform to the Word of God. Now, God doesn't say how many times you ought to clean the church. God doesn't say how many time parking lots you should have. God didn't say what kind of pews you should have or what the shape of the church looks like. It should be within common sense of the Word of God by men who have common sense and who follow the Word of God. And thank you for the men in this church who lead in that particular fashion. But we must lead under the Word of God. And we must be obedient to it. He is the head of the church. And we see then it is reasonable that Christ should be the preeminent one. He loved this church. In Ephesians 5, 25, in part of that verse it says, Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Why should he not be the head? Why should anybody else take over? Christ is the head. We are the followers. In fact, his love is revealed in two places in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you'll take your Bibles and follow along, or your, uh, what do you call it? Your advice, or not your advice, your... Uh, Pardon? Yeah, whatever that is. Phone, laptop, computer, whatever you brought. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus as though he sinned, though he did not sin. And he treats us, even though we sin, as though we have not sinned. Christ went that low. To be identified with your sin and disgusting ways. And paid for. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, just a couple chapters later. He says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it is. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, become rich. Wow. How poor was Jesus? He didn't have any place to lay his head, as he told one potential follower uh, you know what uh, you want to follow me fine but I don't have a fine motel I don't even have a mansion I, I, I just sleep out there with the birds and I sleep out there with the animals and there are a few ladies that, that kind of support me but other than that I don't have any steady income if you didn't have a steady income you'd be worried would you not Jesus relied on God solely, purely, 100%. He followed him. 
The church is not only the body of bread, uh, head of, he's not only a head of the church, the church is the body of Christ. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and uh, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. Where we have the fact that Christ, hard for me to say, the church is the body of Christ. It says in this passage, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The word baptized really throws a lot of people because it's mixed up in uh, holiest, holy circles uh, or Pentecostal circles. When you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were placed in the body of Christ. You are identified with him. You are in Christ. Physical water baptism is merely a symbol, an emblem that you have united yourself with the believers of Christ in the church. It doesn't do anything if you're dry when you go in, you get out wet, and if you're not saved, you come out a wet sinner, nothing changes. It's a way of showing in humility that you belong to Jesus Christ. Spiritual water baptism is dry. It is, it is non-experiential. You don't experience anything. You put your faith in Christ and God, the Holy Spirit, spiritually places you in Christ forever. You're there. You may not even feel like you got in. It's non sensational at all. You may not even known about it until sometime afterward you read the scripture and it said you've been baptized into the body of Christ. When? The moment you believed. It's not some deal you got to wait for. Or they got to have woozy music to get you in mood to do it. It's once and for all. There are many fillings but only one baptism. So you're in the body of Christ. Now look at that same passage in 1 Corinthians 12, 22 and following. 1 Corinthians 12, 22 and following. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Even these members of the body, which deem less honorable, on which we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. In other words, the body consists of many, many parts. How many this morning, when you got up this morning, you thank God for your spleen? Thank you, Lord, for my spleen. The only way you'd have done that is if it was giving you problems. You don't even think about it. You think about the problems where you have problems. I, I haven't thanked God for my liver in a long time. But I'm telling you, if I had problems about it, I would, wouldn't I not? So God covers up those bodies, parts of the bodies, that are very, very important in the body. 
But on the other hand, he lets the eyes and the nose and the mouth open. And we cover up those parts of the body which are less honorable. Quite frankly, I think we're living in a day we need to cover up more parts of the body. I won't go over there. But he says, whereas, verse 24, whereas more presentable members have no need of it. But God has composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. I remember working on a church years ago, and we were finishing a room. And I heard the guy in the next room, we finished the lower level. And we were putting on drywall and stuff, and this guy said, All I ever get in this church is pud jobs. Fellas, ladies, there are no pud jobs in Christ's work. And if you never get your note in a bulletin how wonderful work you have, praise God for that. We were at a Christian banquet and and my dad happened to be attending there and was visiting us. And I said, uh, uh, Faith wasn't overexcited uh, over about going because it was a money push. And so uh, I said to my dad, you want to go? And he said, yeah, I'll go. So we're at the banquet. And during the banquet, they said, over here at this table is over here. Here is the faithful, bigger givers to our school. And my dad said, they just lost their reward. They just lost their reward. It's a benefit and a bonus when people are kind enough to recognize when we've done something good to be, and the right thing to do is to compliment them on it. But we're serving Christ. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And he even has a parable on it, does he not? Let's just serve him with our whole heart and let God shower the blessings on us whether we're done or not. We're doing God's work. And by the way, if you drive a truck or if you run an office, if you farm, if you're a housewife, if you're a mother with 15 children, thank God and do this work for his honor and for his glory. He'll reward you for it. You're all in full-time Christian work as a believer. So that there be no division in the body, but that the members have same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. I know you came here this morning, you're sitting in a comfortable pew. We've tried to get as comfortable pew as we could. We even had a test with a bunch of pews to see which one chairs we liked. This is what we chose. But do you know how much work it actually takes to get a Sunday morning service going? Do you know how many people are studying? How many people have worked for this? How many people are in the background? How many practice? How many are studying their Sunday school lessons? And how many are thinking about thinking this through? This just didn't happen physically. People were in the Lord's work making sure that we could get together have the best and most comfortable ideal situation for teaching the word. Christ is the maker and builder of the church. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. This is an interesting verse. There is a word in Greek called ark. And it means, first of all, like archangel. The archangel in the word of God is Michael. He's the first and most prominent angel of God. However, in this verse, it stands alone. Ark is by itself. And it, mean, again, it means when it's by itself, it's something that gets started. Jesus Christ is the beginning of the church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we read, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. After Jesus made this statement, he made it clear to his disciples that in order to, for him to accomplish the church, he must die and be raised again. In the following verse in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. <clears throat> Jesus built the church. There was no church in the Old Testament prior to this, and there's no church after the rapture of the church. It is a unique piece of work that God, Christ has created from Pentecost to the rapture. And all who believe in him, of every race, tribe, and people, Jew and Gentile, belong to the body of Christ. We're all in, all in it together. And there's probably more, there's more Christians outside of the United States than there is in it. Sometimes we forget that. We think we're the only nation. We're the only people. We have a certain right. No. We got thousands of people under tyranny. Thousands of people under Russian rule, China rule, Muslim rule, fighting in Africa, in civil wars. Some people live some, Christians live some pretty horrible circumstances. We ought to be most, most thankful for what we have here. I think, I, I, I think a church of America has a lot to answer for when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ for its selfishness, for its lethargy, for its lack of movement, for its laziness. Man, we have so much that we have squandered as a church, fighting over colors of the pink, fighting over this, fighting over that in churches one after another. Letting the devil get control, not keeping the fact that Christ is the head of the church. He builds a church. Go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. Followed by Acts chapter 4, verse 4. You know who adds to this church? Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. Here's what the church did on the day after the day of Pentecost. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord, what? Was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who adds to the church? We just read it. The Lord. The Lord adds to the church. I get calls. Uh, I got a call this week. Saying, uh, hey, I represent this Christian organization and uh, we have a wonderful way of uh, discipleship. And we've got series of videos and uh, we got books that go with it and we'll sell them to you at a very reasonable price. We got an extra good price on it. I said, you know what? We got a free book. We got a book, already got a book on discipleship. It's free, but it doesn't have any video with it. Uh, but if we study it good enough, uh, it'll go. What book is that? I'd like to know about that book. And I said, the Bible. And he said, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know that. <laughs> Folks, we've got it here. We just need to study Every book on marriage, every book on discipleship, every book on evangelism, every book is there, they're fine, they're good application, but it's all here. It just needs to be studied. And it just needs to be believed. It's here, right here. We just need to follow it. It'll make your marriage better. It'll make your workplace better. It'll make your life better if you just followed the word of God. It's all there. It's sufficient. It can get you out of depression. It can get you on right on a path. It can motivate you to really serve the Lord. It's, got, it's all right here. But we somehow have the idea that there's a little catch somewhere if we just got a hold of it. We get a hold of it, then we would grow. You know what the catch is? Surrender. Give yourself up. And say, Lord, I'll live for you no matter what the cost is. Everything we do. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 4, we read, Many of those who heard the message believed that a number of men came to about 5,000. God grew the church without evangelists, without every finagling building, parking lot. I've read the books, you know, if you really get a good parking lot, if you have a good building, if you have a good auditorium, you have good Sunday school rooms, you have a gym, you have all these things, live streaming. You have every one thing after another. You're going to grow. Still here. And churches are growing like crazy. But the gospel has been watered down in many cases. Many cases. Can you imagine what would happen here at Countryside Bible Church? Just please imagine if every one of us talk to five people about Jesus Christ. Every one of us as adults talk to five people about Jesus Christ every week. 
What are we supposed to do? How many people did you talk about last week? How many people did you talk about that you know are lost and say, hey, I just want you to know I really enjoy my Lord. And I'd love for you to see the same thing. How, how would that affect church growth at Countryside Bible Church? Well, let's move on. Let's get too convicting. <clears throat> Christ is the firstborn out of the dead ones. In this passage of Scripture we just read, he said in this passage, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning. Before him there was no church. He is the firstborn from the dead. It's literally the dead ones. He's the firstborn in the resurrection. Now there were people raised in Christ's in Christ ministry. We have the daughter of, uh, oh, I blew this off. Using that, there you go. You know, uh, I've been preaching for a long time. But I want you to know I really love the Lord and I love to proclaim his word. So I get a little fanatical preaching, okay? Because I don't have much time left. And I want everybody to know who hears my voice that I'm a, I want to be a mouthpiece for Jesus Christ. And every time I come in the pulpit, that's what I pray, Lord. I want to be your mouthpiece. Forgive me where I blow it. Forgive me where I've exaggerated. Forgive me for these things. But let the people know that I really love Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn out of all the dead ones. You know what that means? Nobody yet has a glorified, incorruptible human body as of this moment. There's only one person. And that's Jesus Christ, and he is in heaven, and he is a human being, 100% living in glory. He's the first one. And as the Bible teaches us, he is the first fruits. In the Old Testament, when you got a harvest, you took the first bushels of the grain, be they whatever, or grapes or fruit, and you took it and you gave it to the priest. And you gave it to the priest and you say, I'm thanking God for the harvest and I'm giving him the best, the first of the crop. And looking forward to the rest. Jesus is that. In Hebrews chapter 1, or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. He is the firstborn out of the dead ones. He is in heaven. You know what the advantage of that is? We have a human being in heaven who lived on this earth. Were you hot and tired last week? He was hot and tired. Do you have an unexpected bill and wondered how it's going to go? He didn't have any. 
He had friends that forsook you. He had friends that forsook him. He experienced every facet of your life. And when you go to him and unload your heart on him, he understands. He understands. So if you're down in the dumps and you're blue, go to him. He ain't going to shove you off. He said, I live there. I know what it's like. Let me help you. He's our great high priest. He alone has the authority over death and hell. In Revelation 1.18 he says, And the living one, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. One of our brothers lost his mother a couple weeks ago, and he sat by her as she was dying. And... You know what? What? She just walked into more life. She walked into more life that day, as all dead believers do. If the Lord doesn't come before my time is up, then I too will walk that same valley. And you know what encourages me? I have a person who's walked that valley before me and is alive. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive. He's on the other side. And he's there to welcome me when I come. Or welcome you as a believer in Christ when you come. The first one you see is not going to be your relative. The first one you're going to see is the one who delivered you from darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. The one who purchased you with his blood. The one who bought you out of, out of slavery. That's the one you're going to see. Doesn't he have the right to have first place in everything? Doesn't he have the right to have your all? Doesn't he have the right for you to say, Lord, I'm rearing these children for you. I want my marriage to glorify you. I want my house to glorify you. I don't want to be content to periodically make a visit to church on a Sunday morning and say, well, I'm done with that. No. He deserves more than that. Christ has a first place in everything. The verb will come here means come in the sense of something out of nothing. He comes. You know, before, before the incarnation, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. After the incarnation, he is man. He is not what he was prior to the cross, prior to the incarnation. He was a creator. He was innately God always. But after he came at Bethlehem and after he died on the cross and rose again, he is unique from God in that he is 100% man. And he's unique from man in that he's 100% God. 
He deserves first place. He has that right. As a creator redeemer who has both a divine nature and a human nature united in one single person forever, he will be a man. And you who know him and I who know him, we will be with him how long? Forever. And we're privileged, by the way. We're going to rule and reign with him. We're his bride. We're his bride. We have a unique relationship with him. More unique than even Israel. No promises were ever made to us as Gentiles. Other than that we would belong with Abraham's seed. But one thing. We are in Christ. Let us stand. On the board is Philippians 2, 9 to 11. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I ask you to repeat that with us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, remember this. You will admit he is God. He is Lord. And you better do it now. Because if you wait, it may be too late. All right, say it with me in unison. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those that are on heaven and under the earth, and that every tongue And that's it, right? You agree with that? If you don't, or you have trouble with that, we'll have an elder over here by the piano who will be waiting here to help you, or I'll be willing to help you, or others in our congregation will be able to witness. One of these days, every tongue will bow. I look forward to that, don't you? I'm tired of hearing God's name slurred in, in a mess. I'm tired of them making fun of Jesus Christ and abusing his name makes me sick when I hear it. And I'm looking forward to the day when he will get the credit he rightfully deserves. Let's give him that credit now. Father, we pray that you will dismiss us with your blessing. May God the Holy Spirit use his word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.